Hello, everybody. Great to see you all. I feel like the musician crowd was bigger than the congregational crowd before for the first time. Um, it's fine. Those people who are, the, uh, who are at the beach, God bless you. <laughs> we loved having many of you over for church last week. Um, it was so great to be in fellowship in a slightly more relaxed fashion. And um, for those of you who are interested, Frankie did have her puppies. Um, she had uh, them on Tuesday morning. Hang on. There she is. On Tuesday morning from 1 o'clock, from 1.30am till 4.30am. So yes, I only had two hours sleep. Um, and I played midwife. But, uh, you know, she's she's pretty self-sufficient. I don't have to do much at the moment except for feed her. So um, it's a lot easier. I'm just glad I'm not feeding eight babies at once. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah, they're bringing us a bit of joy at the moment. So... Um, so we've spent the last few weeks in James, haven't we? We are going slightly out of order today. We are in chapter 5, but that's just the way the preaching schedule worked out, and I'm sure you can all cope with that. And as we've gone, I've noticed that... Um, I should probably take the dogs off, otherwise we'll get a bit distracted. I'll just go back to the blank slide. Um, as we've gone through, I've noticed that James so far seems to have been a lot of don'ts. Don't do this. Uh, don't be double-minded. Don't doubt God's generosity. Don't self-examine. Don't not self-examine and grow more like Christ. Don't let your tongue take the lead in your anger or your frustration. Don't judge. Don't show favoritism. Don't boast about tomorrow. And the list goes on and on. Uh, but this passage is a bit different. This passage indicates um, what more what we should do. It's at the end of uh, the book of James, and there is a resounding theme uh, of prayer, the call to prayer. It actually bookends the whole book of James. The beginning of James, uh, James says that to live well, to live a life that God calls us, we need wisdom, and in order to wisdom, have wisdom, we need to ask God for it. We need to pray. Uh, we need to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit, and because he knows we can't do it on our own strength. And he says, God will give us that wisdom freely uh, and without reserve. And Eugene Peterson writes about this need for prayer in order to get wisdom in the introduction of his book, which is, I thought, really neat. The letter of James shows one of the church's early pastors skillfully going about his work of confronting, diagnosing and dealing with areas of misbelief around or, and misbehaviour that had turned up in congregations committed to his care. Deep and living wisdom is on display here. Wisdom both rare and essential. Wisdom is not primarily knowing the truth, although it certainly includes that. It is a skill in living. For what good is truth if we don't know how to live it? What good is intention if we can't sustain it? According to church, tr church traditions, James carried their nickname Old Camel Knees. We know that from Graham's sermon. Because of the thick calluses built up on his knees from many years of determined prayer. The prayer is foundational to the wisdom. Prayer is always foundational to wisdom. So underlying all of this call for wisdom is this call to prayer. And uh, it's probably a theme that's woven throughout the whole book if we um, wanted to dig into it a little bit more. And prayer is actually referenced seven times in... Oh, no. oh yes, this was my slide that says life... So God calls us to a specific way of life. We therefore must have wisdom... But in order to get wisdom, we must pray. My arrows are very slow. There we go. So that took me a little, a lot longer than it was actually worth to do that slide. But anyway, <laughs> the, 
Prayer is referenced seven times. Now that's actually significant. It's only eight verses, so that's almost one per. Oops. Just, my daughter just got stuck between the two chairs. Oh dear. Do you want me to hold Kizzy? Thanks so much, niece. It takes a village. We're so grateful for our village. So prayer is referenced seven times, which is significant. Does anyone know what the number seven means in Scripture? Does anyone know the significance behind the number of seven? Yeah, yeah, there's lots of references to seven, aren't there? Nice is saying there's seven churches. Does anyone know what the, what, what the seven means, though? Perfect number, yep. Complete, that's right. Perfection, completeness, fullness. God created the world in six days, but on the seventh day it was complete. That was when he took his place to reign and rule over his completed creation. Jesus calls his followers to forgive 77 times. That's a lot of sevens. Uh, That means we must always forgive. We must completely in our lives forgive. Um, So when we see something seven times, it carries weight and significance in a way that it may without. Um, And prayer must be part of our complete lives in every area of life. The full spectrum of life, we should come to the Lord in prayer. And James shows us this in the first few verses, that when we are in trouble, are we in trouble, then we should pray. Um, that should be our response. What, when we are happy, what are we to do? We are to pray. And that doesn't just mean happy as in happy, happy, joy, joy. When we're happy in spirit, despite troubles around us, because we never actually have a trouble-free life. And we touched on that in the Psalm series last year. Um, for those of you who are around for that. Um, now, Kezia, our three-month-old baby up the front here, has no qualms in expressing to me or Graham how she's feeling. If she's unhappy, she will certainly let us know. Uh, if she's happy, she'll let us know with the cutest little goo-goos and gagas, um, which Anya has started to mimic, which is very cute. Um, but if she's upset, if she's hungry, if she's tired, she will certainly let us know. And we've often commented she can go from zero to 100 just in such a short um space of time and her volume, especially in the middle of the night. So why then, if we are born with this ability to express how we are feeling, uh, do we hesitate as adults to come to the Lord uh, with our own experiences of life? We often go first to one another or to social media or to the cat. Um, As my mother used to always say, go to the throne before you go to the phone. Um, Prayer really should be an integral part of our daily lives. And we've covered this territory before in the book of Psalms. um, But it's always important to remind ourselves that prayer is something that Paul commands us to pray without ceasing. I remember as a kid thinking how completely exhausting that is um, and how impossible and even ridiculous. I mean, how can I pray when I'm eating or asleep or talking to someone else? I can't talk to two people at once. Um, But then I discovered this quote from Henry Nouwen, and I may have even... uh, showed you this before, used it as an illustration before, but it's so good, it's worth going there again, Um, which actually helped me think differently about unceasing prayer. To pray, I think, does not mean to think about God in contrast to thinking about other things, or to spend time with God instead of spending time with other people. Rather, it means to think and live in the presence of God. As soon as we begin to divide our thoughts into thoughts about God and thoughts about people and events, we remove God from our daily life and put him in a pious little niche where we can think pious thoughts and experience pious feelings. 
Although it is important and even indispensable for the spiritual life to set apart time for God and God alone, prayer can only become unceasing prayer when all our thoughts, beautiful or ugly, high or low, proud or shameful, just like James says, sorrowful or joyful, can be thought in the presence of God. Thus converting our unceasing thinking into unceasing prayer moves us from a self-centered monologue to a God-centered dialogue. I love that line. This requires that we turn all our thoughts into conversation. The main question, therefore, is not so much what we think, but to whom we present our thoughts. Um, I just love that because it takes away all the pressure and all the stress of, I've got to pray all the time because I'm actually living a life of prayer. Um, Rose is someone who, sorry to put you on the spotlight, Rose, but Rose has this amazing relationship with God and she... Um, talks to God in a way, and uh, yeah, I, I'm sure Rose, you'd be happy to talk to anyone else a little bit about your experience of and the way you've cultivated that um, God-centered dialogue in your life. Um, I respect you a lot in that. Anyway, I've gone off off piste. Um, this is what James is getting at in the first verse: to come to the Lord in all seasons of life, um, trouble-free or carefree, the full spectrum of life God wants to be involved. He cares so much about our lives. Um, not just when we're in the high points and when we've got it together. Um, so what else do we discover about prayer? Uh, we do it individually and we do it corporately. Uh, we are, when we're in trouble, we are to pray individually, but also we can, are invited to call the elders and also to pray for one another um, in a community. And this is a huge function of the church, isn't it? We offer prayer not just because we think it's a good thing to do, but because we recognise it's an essential part of the Christian journey to pray for one another. The other thing we see is that prayer is hugely powerful. In many of your Bibles, this section of Scripture will have been subtitled The Prayer of Faith. It was in my NIV Bible. But Eugene Peterson calls it prayer to be reckoned with. Prayer to be reckoned with. This is There is tremendous power in prayer. And we see this uh, power of prayer ministry referenced in this passage. One of the elders, um, one case with elders uh, praying for the sick person, and in verse 16, the call for us to pray for one another for healing. It's, it does mention elders, but it also says pray for one another. So it's, we're not just limited to leadership. Now this section of text, as I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, why did I land on this? This is kind of like the short straw. Um, it's a section of text that has generated many misinterpretations and still does. Uh, lots of controversy, and I'm afraid that I just can't do a lesson on this text justice in the short time we have today, nor could I do the decent amount of research needed between the needs of a toddler, a baby, and eight puppies this week. Um, but I will make a few comments, and perhaps um, we can come back to this topic of healing prayer more extensively another time if people are interested. And the first thing to say is that this prayer promise, um, the sick person a prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, the Lord will raise them up, um, can lead people to conclude that if we only pray with enough faith and enough fervor and enough enthusiasm that a sick person will become well. And if the sick person doesn't become well, then obviously we just haven't prayed with enough faith. This conclusion is not biblical and it does not line up with the rest of Scripture. It speaks of striving and it speaks uh, not of grace. And this conclusion actually has disastrous results. I've got a friend whose father died a few years ago, and um, he had cancer. He was in his 60s. 
his wife and his kids all prayed with passion and fever, uh, fervor. And um, when he, they based, they based their prayers on passages like this and prayed hard thinking that he would get better. And when he didn't and he died, none of them had actually had the chance to get their heads around the fact that he was dying. Um, none of them actually had the chance to say goodbye um, even though they had, had months and months. And they were hanging on to the hope of a miracle in the last few days. And um, their grief journey was that much more painful because uh, they had things that they had all wished they'd been able to say to their father, but they hadn't, of course. Now, I'm not at all saying it is not right to pray for the sick and hope for a miracle. Absolutely we should, because there is power to pray, power in prayer to heal. And James says that here we are to pray and that we will see physical healings. And I have heard many stories of people being miraculously healed after prayer. And you only have to sit down with Don Corbin over a cup of tea and hear a few um, stories of his time in Africa. Uh, And there are some incredible stories of healing, miraculous healing after after prayer. But we won't always see healing. And this statement in James makes, um, he makes about prayer, fits into the same category of a few others in Scripture that we may have struggled with as we um, have read them. Um, These are two of them. Uh, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Uh, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Now, who has read those passages and been like, these are promises, but I don't always see this happening. Has has anyone else struggled kind of a little bit with these verses? Yeah. These seem to be absolute promises, but we don't see them happening all the time. But we have to read such statements in light of the rest of Scripture. We are never to take one or two verses in isolation and interpret them on their own. In light of the rest of Scripture, we see that such promises are, encouraged, are intended to encourage us uh, to come boldly to the throne of God to ask with confidence, knowing that he does give good gifts and is so generous, uh, and he wants us to present our requests to him. This echoes other bits of Scripture like the book of Psalms and Proverbs. But when we do that, we must come humbly, realizing that our will is not always the same as God's. Our will is not always the same as God's, and we must ultimately submit to his will. These promises do and do not encourage us to come in stubborn insistence that we have got it right and that our will must be done. And we have to realize that although we lift our own will to God in prayer, which obviously is to see a sick person healed, we must also submit to the will of God first and foremost. Now, why God doesn't always will a sick person to be healed, I don't know. I don't know. That's one of the huge mysteries of life. But when we look at the rest of Scripture's teaching on prayer, we see the Lord's example. We see he himself prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was perfect, fully human and fully divine, and he had his own will, which was to avoid the cross. Um, But he submitted to the will of his Father. He prayed, Lord, not your will, Not my will, but yours be done. Theologian Alex Motyer writes, We need to turn, therefore, from what a unique phrase may mean to what the whole verse must mean. Prayer is a commitment to the will of God, and all true prayer exercises its truest faith in patiently waiting to see what he is determined to do. The essence of prayer is not my will, but thine be done. He continues, In the prayer of faith, our faith is not the promises will be fulfilled just like that. It is that the faith which rests trustfully in the will of a sovereign, faithful and loving God. Neither the sick person nor any of the elders is there to insist that his or her will be done, but to put the sick one within the total eternal security of the unchangeable and unchangeably gracious will of God.
To say thy will be done does not impose a restriction on what we ask. Uh, rather, it lifts all, all earthly restrictions. We never know how God in his wisdom will act or answer, but it is still right to ask in humility. So it's a tough, it's a tough one. Um, the next point uh, to notice about prayer from this passage in James is that prayer for healing is not restricted to the eldership, elders or leadership. I've actually already touched on this. Yes, it's encouraged, but it's also right for us to pray for one another, um, elder or not. It's also right to pray for one another as we confess our wrongdoings. We all fall short. Um, as much as perfect as Graham and I may look, we are not perfect. <laughs> we don't look perfect. I know that's not an illusion. Um, <laughs> Uh, and um, I, I find it a huge blessing actually if we've had a disagreement about some, something and we're not right on the same page we often find it helps when we remember to pray together uh, somehow even if we're still upset or angry um, coming to the Lord in prayer together and also to pray for one another uh, helps us to reconcile whatever differences we have it's almost like we're, we're inviting the third person into the conversation um, and if I've failed or done something that hasn't involved him, uh, to be able to share with him and pray with him about it and him to pray for me, it's always so encouraging and I'm so grateful for that. And, you know, if we don't have a spouse, a good friend, a godly friend, that is just, um, God has given us community for these um, for these times. So, so far we can see that prayer is for all seasons, the full spectrum of life. It's for times of joy and fullness, but also times of suffering, illness and times of contrition. We are to pray individually, but also corporately for one another. And for sure, there are times when it's right to call the elders to pray for someone who's sick. But there is also plenty of space for prayer for one another without calling the elders. Now, James then gives us the example of Elijah to illustrate his convictions on prayer. Now, who here um, would like to remind us of some of the highlights of Elijah's of Elijah's career? He's a pretty known, well-known biblical character, so... What, just shout out any, anything that kind of comes to mind when you think of Elijah. Uh, yeah, I, yep, but that, that's at the end of his life. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I'd, I'd quite like to go that way. John? He did. He did have the big pro- showdown with the prophets of Baal. Yep. Um, was that a combined effort there? <laughs> well done. <laughs> I'm actually going to talk about that in a moment. Yep. What else? Moses? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. And then he had a floating axe as well, yep. Yes, yep. Fed by ravens, that's right, yep. Yep. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Elijah was also the one who, I don't know if you remember, the widow's son um, who died. Elijah stretched out and lay on top of him and prayed for him, and he was raised. That was a a powerful um, example of God's healing prayer. Um, And he announced a great drought, which is obviously what James is referring to, and prayed that it would not rain, and then he, at the end of that uh, three and a half years, prayed that it would rain, and the rain came. So James has held up Elijah as a good example of a righteous man who prays, and the results are powerful. What else do we know about Elijah? Um, and Jenny has alluded to this. He was a man, he was a humble man, just as we are, humble human being. He was a prophet, but he was still just a human being. 
Um, he didn't have supernatural powers. Um, he could be brave and rise to the heights of faith and commitment, like he did on the Mount Carmel. Um, but he also was prone to falling to the depths of despair and depression. And it was immediately after the Lord had done this big showcase of his power and that he was, he was on Elijah's side. Um, he had smote the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in the most impressive display ever. That the very next day when the woman Jezebel sent a threat to Elijah, he hightailed it immediately into the desert, afraid for his life and even prayed that God would take his life. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. Talk about melodramatic. Um, here's a good example of praying his will that God would take his life, but he surrendered to the will of God, and God, of course, his will was not for Elijah to die. For sure God listened, but instead of taking his life, he sent an angel or and ravens to give him food and to sustain him, to give him drink and then lead him on towards Horeb, where he presented himself to Elijah in the most amazing way. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole of the um, Bible, actually. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Imagine if you got an invitation by that, like that. Imagine if you woke up and you felt like the Lord was, yeah, wow. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind came an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. He goes on to have a conversation with the Lord. But I love how gentle uh, the Lord is with Elijah. He's just been down and out, depressed, even though he doesn't need to be because God's just proved who he is. But God is just so gentle with Elijah, um, while still dis- displaying his tremendous powers again to him with all of the fire and the earthquake and the um, craziness. Um, but he is uh, just reminding him that uh, when we pray to the God of Israel, he really is a force to be reckoned with. Um, But what's interesting is the way he speaks is not frenzied and dramatic, but often a gentle whisper, Um, yet it still carries such power. There is power in prayer because there is power in our God. There is power when we pray for the sick as Elijah did and saw the widow's son healed. There is power when we pray for the sick and many of us have, as I'm coming back to this point, that many of us have heard testimonies of when people have been healed. Um, but we don't always know the will of God, and we can't see the big picture like he can. And sometimes it seems that our prayers are not answered the way that we would like them to be. And here lies many of the questions around verse 15, which seems so absolute. Um, a few weeks after I finished year 13, um, One of my classmates, Alana, was involved in a horrific car crash. Her boyfriend at the time had been showing off in his car. Um, I'm not sure if he'd been under the influence of of drugs or alcohol, but he was doing 80Ks in a 50K zone, lost control of the car, and Alana ended up in life support uh, in hospital um, while he walked away with a bit of whiplash. Alana was adopted by her parents, and um, her family were some of the most amazing godly people I know. And as she lay in that coma in intensive care, she was surrounded by such uh, earnest prayer. She had her whole life ahead of her. And I remember as a schoolgirl, we were all just part of this big community of people praying for her. And yet, after a week, she passed away. She was unable to recover from the injuries sustained to her body. And it just didn't make sense to me that God did not heal her. It doesn't make sense to me that God didn't heal Ken Um, There was certainly a lot of prayer going on for him too. And it doesn't make sense to me that many of the times people aren't healed for their afflictions. But these are the times 
We have to trust in the unchanging goodness of God's character despite what we see around us and despite our prayers not being answered in the way that we desperately desire them to be answered. Um, There are things that we just do not know this side of eternity, and I wish I could give you better answers, but I just can't. But we are still to pray, James encourages us. Nonetheless, prayers of honesty, as we saw in the psalm study, and prayers of humility, trusting in the wisdom and the unchanging goodness of God. And as Alex Motyer um, says, prayer may not remove the affliction, but it most certainly can transform it. And something that was really remarkable um, in the days after Alana's death was that her parents actually openly forgave uh, the boyfriend. In the courtroom, as he was being convicted for manslaughter, they stood up, they said that they uh, had forgiven him, and they pleaded that the judge would be lenient with him as they believed he was honestly remorseful um, and that he would carry the suffering of what he had done with him for the rest of his life. This guy was a bit of a ratbag. He wasn't just a, you know... Um, a nice Christian boy who'd, who'd made a few wrong decisions. He actually kind of, yeah. Um, but they they forgave him, and it was an incredible story, and it was published in the local paper. And now, of course, this doesn't lessen uh, the tragedy of what happened at all. Um, but it did give the opportunity to tell a story of incredible grace and forgiveness um, to a world where this is actually pretty foreign. And from all accounts, I've heard via someone else that he's doing really well now, um, I don't know uh, the long-term effects of, of how this has been, but I'm pretty sure that that act of forgiveness um, and grace extended to him would have made a deep impact on him. Now, going back to Elijah as we, as we conclude, James assumes a lot when he writes. We've got to remember that the audience that these books are written to, um, the audiences were very familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. They really knew a lot about um, the prophet Elijah, for example, um, that we have to work harder to remember the facts um, around these biblical characters. We've got to go back and do a bit of work. We've got to go back and perhaps read the biblical accounts. Um, so when James holds Elijah up as an example of righteous person of prayer, he does use the example of Elijah's prayer for drought and rain, but he also assumes that we know the other stories in Elijah's life as he holds him up to illustrate what he is saying. So it's helpful for us as we read passages like this to go back and review um, a bit of Elijah's story uh, to see what he did, to see how he prayed, to understand the fullness of what James is saying. So I'm just going to quickly look at the prayer that he is probably the most famous for praying um, or his most famous prayer, um, which is in on that Mount Carmel when he's calling down um, God. Uh, as most of you, for those of you who may have a few gaps in your memory, Elijah announces that there's only one God and sets up a challenge between the prophets of Baal and uh, himself uh, to see who's really the Lord of all. And it starts with the fact that there are actually 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, all who are praying to their God. Um, we see that they prayed from morning until noon. Uh, that's quite a few hours. Uh, they went from praying to shouting and dancing, and then finally they end up in a frenzy in such desperation to hear from their God and to prove that their God was real. They slashed themselves with swords and spears and blood was flowing everywhere and it would have been a blimmin' mess. Um, there was still no answer, so they kept going until till, till night time. And in stark contrast, Elijah, this one man, stands up uh, on his own and he offers this simple prayer without shouting or whipping himself into a frenzy. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done these things at your command. 
Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And we know the story that um, God immediately poured down fire from heaven and burnt up this uh, his altar to a crisp which was drenched in water and um, shouldn't have gone up in flames at all if you were a prophet of Baal. Yes, he was a prophet, but he was still a human just like us with the same weaknesses. And he offers up a simple prayer uh, and he saw dramatic divine results. And it's the same with the prayer that James references it to start and end the drought in this book of um, in this end of the book of James. Human prayer is prayer to an all-powerful God with divine results. I love that. Now I don't know about you, but I've been to a few prayer meetings in my time, uh, and some of them represent more prophets of Baal than Elijah. Um, people whipping themselves into a frenzy to get the Lord's attention, to show how much faith they have um, and whatever else they need to show off, how many spiritual words they can get into a sentence. Um, and if you're an expressive type of person and this is the way you pray normally, then fine. But this is not what the Lord requires. It certainly doesn't add any weight or extra righteousness to a prayer. All we need to do is bring our prayers humbly to the Lord and simple, and he is the only one who can produce any divine results. So James's call to prayer and the wisdom from God that comes in answer to our simple prayers really is the only way we can live um, this way that James is, is writing about in his book. And as we finish up in the next week or two, um, let's keep that in mind. Let's keep that in mind that it is prayer that undergirds everything in order to have the wisdom from the Lord in order to live the way that we are called. So uh, quite appropriately, let's just close this little bit of time in prayer. Father God, we acknowledge that you are the only one who can give us the wisdom, the power, uh, the spirit, the conviction to live the way you have called us. We want to be like James with camel knees, um, known for our time of prayer, known for our relationship of prayer, the ability to pray unceasingly, inviting you into every moment of our day so that it doesn't become a self-centered monologue but a God-centered dialogue. Lord, we ask that you would show us this week what this looks like in our daily lives, one step closer towards that life of unceasing prayer. Father, we commit ourselves to you as we take away this, this word from you. In your name, amen.